Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Mark, I used to do porn until I discovered Diffusion West. We'll look at the mathematics of the current global recession. Ian, the backbone of this show, Wolf, will review the Consumer Electronics Business Information Technology, or CBIT, exhibition held recently here in Sydney. And there'll be the usual round of science discussion, opinion disagreement and hopefully a great big fist fight right here in the studio with plenty of mirth and merriment. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore, and first up we have the news with Pat trying to choose between paediatrics and penis enlargement, Ruby. From ABC Science, a new carbon sink inspired by a sponge. Sea cucumbers might have the perfect chemical and physical properties to mop up CO2 produced when burning fuel for energy. The research into this phenomenon is being carried out by Dr Andrew Harris and his team of chemical engineers at the University of Sydney, Australia. Animals from the invertebrate phylum Echinodermata which includes starfish, sea cucumbers and sea urchins, have a natural calcium carbonate skeleton which is good at absorbing CO2, according to Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris's team wants to use that skeleton as a model and construct synthetic sponges made from a slightly different compound, calcium oxide. These special sponges could then absorb CO2 produced from the burning of fossil fuels. Dr. Harris is designing this new sponge to work in conjunction with the generation of hydrogen fuel. Hydrogen is produced from combusting fossil fuels and biofuels, and the sponges would be used to mop up the byproduct CO2. The hydrogen would then be combusted for energy, producing water as a waste product, which is a much better alternative to CO2. Eventually, fossil fuels would not be used at all, with biofuels and organic waste being combusted to make hydrogen and the new synthetic sponges being used to mop up the excess CO2 produced. However, the sponges do get used up, and CO2 will need to be released from the sponges and used up or put into another type of sink eventually, in order to recycle the sponges. Dr. Harris is currently working on a way to use this re-released CO2. And finally, from ABC Science, office jobs are a pain in the neck for women. A new Australian study has shown that women office workers are three times more likely to suffer from neck pain than men office workers. The research was conducted by Dr Julia Hush of the Back Pain Research Group at the University of Sydney. Her team followed 53 office workers at the University of Sydney over one year and asked these office workers to fill out questionnaires on whether they were getting neck pain. 50% of people who had no previous neck pain had at least one episode of neck pain within the 12 months of the study. Most pain recovered within two weeks of onset, but 12% of the people with pain had pain longer than this.
women and people with high levels of psychological stress were more likely to get pain. People who exercised regularly and had more flexible necks were less likely. Hush believes women are more likely to get pain because they hold more tension in their muscles while they work. The findings are being published online in the European Spine Journal. Still got a job? The recession has hit many people, and jobs have been lost, share markets have crashed, and companies collapsed. Mark West spoke to Nick Davis from the World Economic Forum about what went wrong with our economic mathematical models. We modelled risk badly in terms of these various financial instruments that were all based around the subprime housing market. What did they get wrong when it came to risk? Maybe just to explain a little bit about how kind of traders model model risk. And, and I'm, not an, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I've been working with these guys a lot over the last year. Essentially, when you, when you model risk, you often make a few key assumptions about how your ability to price that option works and also how your ability to hedge against that risk works. And most of the models assume, kind of make three key assumptions. When you build a model that, that assesses an instrument um, and the risk in, inside it, it normally assumes that you trade continuously, so you can always trade that, that asset. There's never a point where there's no buyers or sellers, and there's never a point where the market's shut. Yep, so and that's it's... clearly wrong. There are times when the market's shut, and there are times, as we've seen recently, where there is just no one out there to buy it, no one willing to buy it. So the second key assumption that people make is that it's actually there's a normal distribution in terms of stock market movements. Most people are familiar with the idea of a normal distribution, but it's the idea that relatively little happens, very very few big jumps or, or big jumps up or big jumps down, very few cha- extreme changes. Most of the changes kind of clustered in the centre around um, a, a median or a mean. And people assume that's the way that stock markets move and that's the way that returns uh, are distributed. But unfortunately, financial markets are not normally distributed. And we've known that for a long time, but the models don't know that. And so that's a big problem. When you start getting value and, and, and price movements that are much, much greater than the, than the model can handle, it breaks down. Okay. And then I guess the, the third assumption these models make is that, that we can estimate volatility. So the volatility is a, a kind of measure of how far, how far uh, and frequently those prices will move over the course of time, over a specific time period. And traders mo- uh, estimate mo- uh, volatility by going back in time and looking at past returns or past price movements. And I was talking to a risk manager the other day that said, oh, yeah, the models were wrong, but that's just because we didn't look back far enough. We were only looking back two to three years. We should have been looking back five to ten years. Okay. Well, the first point in answer to that is even five to ten years doesn't capture the kind of volatility we've seen at all in the last um, the last couple of years and last year. And, um, and secondly, the past is not a good guide to the future. You, you cannot... Possibly, the, 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 the risks and volatility that emerged, that has emerged recently has not happened before in the way that it happened before. So even if you had priced in volatility of the Great Depression, you still wouldn't have been able to accurately see uh, or um, hedge against what's going on now. So those are the kind of those are just the three main sources of what we call model risk. 
Yep. And those three assumptions, particularly those last two, the assumption of a normal distribution and the assumption that we can estimate volatility in the future, the, those two are the big ones that we got wrong. They're really, they're really, really prevalent and they're still out there and it's, very, it's going to be very hard to change people's minds about those two issues. And that's the difference between risk and uncertainty, isn't it? Risk, you, you can sort of assume that you can model in, in the normal distribution sense. Uncertainty is that, well, you don't even know what distribution you should be using in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, um, there's a, I mean, Maynard Keynes talked about this a long time ago. Back in the, he published a paper that referred to this in the 20s and, and, and a guy called Knight in the US also talks about this kind of stuff. People miss this kind of distinction a lot. They, they view risk, I mean, risk, in, in our definition, as you just said, is that that can be quantified in some way and estimated. But most of what we think of as downside risks to a position, i.e. what I can lose, uh, the bulk of that actually comes from things that are completely uncertain, things that you can't actually uh, quantify or that haven't happened in the past. But there's also a, a tendency for risk traders to look at 95% or 99% confidence intervals of their model. They say um, on a daily basis, so, and this is a, there's a model called value at risk, which is um, incredibly wild, widely used uh, in the financial uh, industry. And it says, given a, a normal distribution of possible returns and, and, and losses of a particular portfolio, we want to know what, what we could possibly lose to a 99% confidence. But basically, a lot of people are being saying now, well, hold on a second, the big losses come in that 1% that you're that you're uh, ignoring the half a percent at the top and a half a percent at the, top, the bottom. Or in the case of the 95%, the 2.5% at the top, the 2.5% at the bottom. And that's actually where things have gone wrong this time. It hasn't been in the normal distribution that we're worried. It's about the, the massive, what they call the tail risk uh, event that have, um, that have been the, the big problem. And the tail risk event is, where, is really where we talk about uncertainty rather than risk because it's stuff that hasn't happened before and it's stuff that's very, very, very difficult or if not impossible to foresee. And is, is that what we call the black swan? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a great guy called um, Nassim Taleb who wrote this book called The Black Swan, and he has a, an, an excellent way of describing this kind of uncertainty. He's written two very good books, Fools by Random, Randomness, that he wrote in 2001 but came out uh, in 2004, and uh, another one called recently called The Black Swan. And essentially what he says is a black swan is a really, really high-impact event that is impossible to know in advance and is extremely rare. He doesn't necessarily think that for everyone, the global financial crisis was a black swan because there were people out there who were lucky enough to be tracking indicators um, or dealing in, in securities that clearly showed problems leading up to the global financial crisis and these people were betting in the right direction or that they, had, they were screaming to an audience with best fingers in their ears for a long time before this happened. However, for most people who hadn't ever considered any of the issues around here, the global financial crisis was a big black swan because the media was out there saying things are going up, we're fine. And then when Lehman Brothers came down last September, that's when everyone suddenly realised that we're in big trouble. So yeah, that's what they call a black swan and black swans by definition happen at those tails. Another key concept that Taleb has popularised is this distinction between the normal distribution, which people assume and build models on in finance, 
and kind of and other more extreme distributions like uh, power laws or exponential distributions or other uh, more exotic variations. Basically, and in a normal distribution, you have very little going on at the very top and the very bottom. Most of the most of your events are clustered in the middle, and that's why people feel relatively comfortable saying. Uh, let's just focus on the 99% interval because that tells us what happens, you know, 99 days out of 100 or 99% of the time. What happens in the rest, we'll, de- we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll have some kind of other strategy. Yep. But what Taylor says is actually um, there, are, there are two worlds. There's a world of what he calls mediocristan, which is a normally distributed world. And, um, and his example is you take the weight of 1,000 or 10,000 individuals in Australia and you, you, know, you put them all on the scale and you find out they're average and all that kind of stuff. Um, it'll probably be pretty normally distributed. And if you take then the heaviest person that you can find on the planet and add them to that, your, your distribution of, say, 1,000 people, they won't add much to the total weight and they won't skew the distribution all that much because you've got 1,000 people in there, it's normally distributed. One outlier is not going to make a massive difference to, to your sample. But then he goes, there are other, other distributions out there and there are other worlds which operate under different laws. And he says, uh, he calls this world, extremistan. And he says, in extremistan, you have a vastly different distribution, which is not normal. And he said, take, for example, thousand people at random and, and take their personal wealth. You'll find a distribution for that personal wealth. Yep. And, and it may be normal, it may be close to normal distribution. We're not quite sure. It depends really who you pick. But you'll get some distribution. And he goes, then take the richest person you can find on the planet, say Bill Gates, and pop them into your distribution. Yep. And he goes, you'll find that you've completely changed the story. Like, he will probably comprise 10,000 or a million times the wealth of, of, of everyone else combined, perhaps. That is uh, an example of how the world works in extremistan, and that's not confined to wealth. That's also how it happens in financial markets. In financial markets, an outlier like Bill Gates can massively dominate the rest of what happens. An yeah. event like the global financial crisis can destroy all your returns going back to the day you started investing um, or the day our parents started investing 40, 40 50 years ago. Uh, and that's a problem if you are modelling your risk and modelling your, um, your, your, your risk management on the assumption of a normal distribution where one bad day can't really affect all the other days uh, sure, because, yeah. it's, because you assume that you know, what happens right out in the tail is, is, is relatively small compared to the rest of the distribution. Yeah. And so that, that concept that Nassim has, has popularised, mediocristan versus extremistan, it is, points back to that assumption about assumption of normal distribution in the model risk and also points back to a really important thing that we need to change in the way we not just model, but the way we think about our investments and the complexity of the financial system. That was Mark West, and he's lucky to still have a job because he's a public servant. All right, we're sitting here in the studio, all mics on, all brains humming. Pat, you're going to talk to us about lithium in the water supply, mate. A bunch of Japanese researchers have postulated that lithium might actually be a key to reducing the problem of suicide. Now, lithium is typically used today for bipolar disorder, um, which is a disorder where people experience periods of what's clinically described as mania, where they have positive mood, um, feeling very, very energetic, um, and very sort of 
bright and alert and chirpy, uh, which is followed by periods of depression where they have what's called a negative affect. So their mood um, is decreased. Um, they are often quite lethargic, often unable uh, to function um, quite normally. It's very debilitating. And lithium is currently used as a therapy to treat that. Uh, but the, bipolar disorder was once called manic depression, yeah? Yeah, right. it was once called manic depression. Um, but the Japanese researchers have published uh, an observational um, study in the British Journal of Psychiatry, um, the most recent edition, which has looked at different prefectures in Japan, in the um, Oita prefecture. My Japanese isn't that good, so I'm hoping I pronounced it right which has seen an observation that people that have lithium, um, well, prefectures which have a low level of lithium in the drinking water actually show lower rates of suicide. Sorry, um, lower. Lower low. rates of suicide. So how much lower than the dose for manic depression are we talking? It's pretty low, isn't it? Uh, it is. It's, it's classified as subclinical. So these are lithium levels that range between 0.7 and 59 micrograms per litre. Um, like thousands of times less than the therapeutic dose? Exactly. Thousands of times less. Which begs the, I suppose, it begs the philosophical or moral question of whether it would be appropriate to put something in the drinking water to affect people's, people's moods automatically. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, you know, why don't we just shove a wheelbarrow full of Zoloft or Prozac into the water supply and be done with it? Because it makes some people suicidal. Well, what does lithium do? Um, I'm not so sure what lithium does. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure that people know what the biological mechanism is well, that's for the stabilising mood. Hmm. It's not actually... In this case, the science is a bit rubbery because there's not lots of studies supporting this. There's this one observation, and just because they've seen an effect and a possible cause doesn't mean that they're correlated. The lithium might not be what's causing the reduction in suicide. And, of course, this really, really low dose of lithium that they're taught, thousands of times lower than the therapeutic dose, Mm. they have no idea what the mechanism could be if it is causing the effect. So until they know what the mechanism is and they know what the side effects might be, Mm. it sounds like a bit of a dangerous idea to automatically try and damp down any... I mean, who knows what other thoughts it damps down as as well, if it Mm. does have an effect. Mm. But it is trying to mood control the population a little, for their own good. Yeah, it's it's a little Orwellian. Mm. (laughs) You know? You ever see that Simpsons episode where everyone stepped forward and had a lobotomy? Come and join us, it's blue. Yes. Ned Flanders was yeah. Big Brother, I and think, Ned Flanders in that one. Was big yes. brother, yeah. mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting shades of that myself. Well, it mm. reminds me, of course, of the controversy over fluoride in mm. the drinking water. And I was always thinking, you know, if we have fluoride in our toothpaste, which is applied directly to our teeth, which is where the fluoride's needed, why is it in the water? We don't need it in the water. Surely if you're brushing your teeth then you're protected by the fluoride and by the fact that you're brushing your teeth. And if you don't brush your teeth, all the fluoride in the water isn't going to stop them falling out and rotting in your head. Hmm. So it doesn't make sense. How, okay. Does anyone know how is fluoride made, just incidentally? <laughs> it's a byproduct of, <laughs> of refining uranium, uranium oh. hexafluoride. Oh, mm. And you can hear Ian on the Conspiracy Podcast each week. <laughs> 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 wow. There's been recent news by an Australian researcher from ANU in Canberra, actually, and he thinks uh, that we may have accidentally made swine flu ourselves. It might not have arisen naturally 
in Mexico as uh, we we think at the moment, um, it, Australia, uh, scientists may have actually made it in the laboratory. Um, he thinks that it might have been a result of human error, and his name is Adrian Gibbs, who's 75, and he's actually co-authored more than 250 scientific publications on viruses during his career. So he is a pretty well-known and um, highly credentialed scientist, and he collaborated on the research that developed uh, Tamiflu, which is the common um, antiviral drug. And he uh, intends to publish a report suggesting the new strain of swine flu may have accidentally evolved in eggs scientists use to grow viruses and drug makers use to make vaccines. Are any companies publicly coming out and supporting him or opposing him with uh, this theory? Well, I haven't heard any support for him at all, actually. Mm. The, World Ho- the World Health Organization haven't uh, gone either way. They're just investigating it. Various other places like the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta have received the report and decided there's no evidence to support his conclusion. So at the moment, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's just... Uh, it's not likely to go anywhere unless it's pushed. If you think about it, the governments don't want to think that their laboratories are responsible. For it. Nobody wants to be responsible for the swine flu. The companies don't want to be the ones who are responsible for a mistake that led to swine flu. So if it's if it's true, or if it's not true, if, if there's any... It looks like this guy's a very respected researcher who's been doing this for nearly 40 years. Um, so therefore, it should be properly investigated, but there's a lot of politics, obviously, against it being investigated in case it's true. Because if it is true, what do we do? One of the interesting things so far is, I believe, at least at the time of recording, they haven't actually isolated swine flu in an animal. They don't know that it actually started in a pig. It could have started in a bird. And interestingly, I found out uh, during the week, or you guys might have told me actually some other time, um, the way that swine flu started was cockfighters sucking the mucus out of birds before they fought. avian flu. Avian Avian flu. flu. Sorry. Yeah, avian flu. Yeah. Sucking the mucus? Out of of the the cocks before they fight. Some of these Asian cultures love their birds. Wouldn't it bite your tongue off? Well, I don't, I I don't really know. I don't yeah. really know why they did it's it. It's that kind of um, you know you can't fight on an empty stomach sort of philosophy. Well, the thing about swine flu is I think it's uh, it's two parts pig, one part bird, and one part human influenza. So it could easily have started so, in any of uh, swine flu is a bit of a misnomer. Half. It's more swino avio. Well, it's not even that. Flu. It's got proteins on its surface that are in common with the one that only infects pigs. So go out and get the flu vaccine so at least you're protected against the current flu. When the, fly, when the swine flu does mm-hmm. hit, you won't already be disabled by regular flu. It's very sound advice, Ian. Very sound advice indeed. Ian, uh, speaking of Ian, you've been along to the Consumer Electronic Business Information Technology Exhibition in Sydney. I have been to the CBIT Computer Show, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit different to the last ones. I mean, basically, the, the first trick for CBIT is you want to get in for free. You don't want to pay your 20 you do want to pay your $20 entry fee. So the way to do that is you go onto the website a few months ahead of time and register, and they'll send you free entry. And after that, you're on the mailing list, and they'll remind you in time, and you get in for free. I think it's only really an entry fee to keep away the kids. And then when you get in, it used to be, you'd get free stuff. There'd be swag, or swag, as, it, as it's known. Swag? So swag. You'd be getting... Bags of stuff, you'd be getting little key rings, you'd be getting all sorts of little promotional bits to give away so you remember the brand and perhaps hopefully get your company to buy lots of them. What were once called sample bags. 
Sample bag type things, yeah. Mm. So it's like computer sample bag stuff and all sorts of sweets on the counter and maybe beer or coffee or whatever. And there's also, uh, they try and get people in with the the girls in the booths by dressing them up or down, depending. And so this year, there was less swag. More girls? There were more girls. Excellent. And there was beer instead of coffee at some Mm. of the places. Getting better. More boots as well, or...? Did they lose the boots? And did they dress up or down? <laughs> they tended to dress down. There Excellent. were naughty nurses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't I invited to this? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fantastic. And, and there, there were fraulines in a beer garden, for goodness sake. At one of the stands. It was very nice. Uh, so there's less of the, the other stuff, but there was also... I was looking for the toys, because the new products, what can you play with? And there wasn't a lot this year. So... The standouts for me were the pocket data projector that for $350 instead of the usual you know, $1,500 to $2,000 data projector. The only problem with this is that for your $350, it's not very bright. So the guy who was trying to demonstrate it had to actually put little curtains all around the area on the wall that he wanted to show. And in fact, you basically need the lights turned off. Well, of course, if you're looking for material to show on your data projector, the other product the same people were, show, were selling was the Eagle Eye, which is a pair of sunglasses. And maybe this is something, you know, for the video podcasters out there, for the investigative journalists. It's a pair of sunglasses with a built-in camera and microphones and flash storage, flash drives. So basically, you wear these, hit the button, and what point of view, what you see is what the camera sees. And you can store four hours of it as you go around doing whatever it is you're doing that you're going to show on TV or on the net. That's fantastic because I often have <laughs> my really old Konica Minolta, which is a 2005 model, which I've had ever since I've come back from traveling overseas. And when I go on walks or things, I often have the, um, the impulse to take a photo because I think what I see right now is really cool. And I take the photo and it comes out pretty crap because it doesn't <laughs> seem to capture what I thought I captured through my own eyes. To have something like this would be fantastic. Well, this is the cheap version. This is $200. Of course, the super deluxe version is what Professor Steve Mann has in Canada, which is the ITAP. The ITAP looks like a regular pair of glasses, not even sunglasses, with just a little wire across. You'd hardly know that they were high-tech. And they actually, literally, they follow his eyes where the pupils go. And literally, what he sees is what the camera sees, live streamed to the internet because he's got a wearable computer hooked up to the net 24-7. So how does it follow his eyeballs? It has a little camera that tracks them. Oh, well, cool. And that's all from us for this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us with feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this edition of Diffusion were Mark West, Ian Wolfe, Dr. Pat Ruby, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced by Pat here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Join us inside your audio device of choice next week for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Who do you call when everything you know has become a lie? Who do you call when you know that the end 
of the world is nigh. Do you call when you need reliable and constant results? Do you call when you need to know the circumference of a circle in relation to its diameter? Who do you call? Eight, four, six, two, six, four, three, three, eight, three, two, seven, nine, five. 